Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome to No Limits, the Thriller Podcast. What's new this week, Mike? Hey, a little something different this week on the podcast. Kind of cool to talk to Eric Bishop, a behind-the-scenes chat about the life of both a published author and now a self-published independent author. We went into the weeds with him. It was fun. Yeah, you know, we. I wanted to talk to him about more about the book, but it was also very insightful to you know, learn about this and going through his struggle or, you know, not struggle, but like, we don't really get a lot of this aspect from the various authors that we talked to. The only other one was, oh, I forget the name of the guy, but he was also doing all this Amazon self-publishing stuff. Yeah, super intriguing, like sort of peeling back behind the curtain to see, you know, what it truly like is to do this on your own. I guess we've gotten a little bit of introspection from Ward, who also has a full-time job outside or like had a full-time job outside of like writing originally. Yeah, so really interesting to peel back behind the curtain, understand that. Yeah, great guy to talk to. Really, really enjoyed uh, talking to Eric Bishop today. Yeah, and I definitely recommend The Body Man. I mean, go back and listen to our episode on that and our interview with him because it's kind of cool that we saw his fully fleshed out novel with a character at the White House. And it was really like a high stakes, heavy drama, like big political consequences kind of drama in that book. And it could take the time to cook and get into a lot of nitty gritty on the setting and the politics. And then this book is a novella, so it's almost a much more quicker, crisper read. We're not going too deep into any one thing. We're just kind of keeping it moving. So this is a nice little break from whatever heavier reading that you're doing. We have a very packed reading list the next couple of months. Yes, we do. So so this was almost like a refreshing, you know, breath of air uh, to read it. At times, you know, I was in and out of the story, but I have to say in the end, it's an absolute worthwhile read for a twist that comes halfway through. And if you have read it, you'll know what I'm talking about. We have a lot of fun at the end of our interview getting into spoilers. So the first half of the interview is spoiler free if you have not picked up Ransom Daughter by Eric Bishop. And then you'll hear a spoiler alert. We make it very, very clear when we talk about the twist at the at the towards the end of this book. So Definitely, if you picked it up, listen. If you haven't picked it up, still listen, then click pause before you do. I totally recommend it for that reason, because even you, Chris, we were texting and, you know, kind of we were enjoying the book, enjoying the story. It's a universe we're not really fully immersed in yet, because as a novella, how much universe building can you do? There's not a lot of page time for it. But we both started digging the story once the twist happened. And we realized why some characters were doing what they were doing and why some shady things didn't seem to fit. And in the end, it all really checked out and was a fun ride. So uh, like Adam Hamdy says on the cover, a short, sharp, action-packed adventure and definitely worth your time. Yeah, and I think it'll make you want more. And I'm I'm excited to see where he can go with this along with, because he mentioned in the interview that he's going to be ambitious two books next year sequel to the uh, sequel to the body man and then also the first full-length novel in this series so yeah more to come from eric bishop all right guys today we are joined again on no limits the thriller podcast with a good friend of the podcast a great follow on social media eric bishop welcome back to no limits welcome welcome thank you gentlemen good to see you mike i think it was only you last time i think chris was uh down and out or something. There was something going on. I don't <laughs> Every remember. time. And then I, I I got COVID for a fourth time two weeks ago. We were supposed to record. So thank you for rescheduling because, you know, I, I really liked the Ransom Daughter. So I wanted to have an opportunity to talk to you about it. And, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk last time. So glad, glad to chat. I was just going to say, before we get into things, just for the audience to know, we like to cover spoilers here on the podcast. But Eric, we're going to try to save that maybe for our last 10, 15 minutes or so. That way we can hear from you a little bit about this book, how it came to fruition. You might as well be nicknamed The Grinder because you are out there grinding every single day. And so we want our audience, even before they pick up the book, to hear a little bit about your story. But as is our specialty, we'll ask you about the actual plot details and these characters in Ransom Daughter Daughter at the very end. What do you think about that? Absolutely. Glad to spill the beans. It's been out for a little while, so uh, they're going to figure it out anyway, so... Quick read, too, as a novella. Tell us about that choice of going from The Body Man, a full-length novel last year, to this novella now in the Troy Evans Omega Team universe. Yeah, so it's actually, so 
the quick version of the story is I was fully anticipating um, coming out with Breach of Trust, you know, within a year, year and a half of the Body Man. And all great plans sometimes end up in the crapper. So, you know, that's uh, that's that that's the de- definition of life sometimes. But no, uh, publisher did not uh, did not like Breach of Trust. I don't know. I don't know what to say about uh, just difference. uh Difference of opinion whether it should be published or not, and I felt pretty firm that it was good. Um, I didn't really see a way to change it that would make both of us happy, so I just said, you know, it is what it is. We can either publish it or we can move, you know, go our separate ways, and uh, which is a tough. It wasn't an easy thing to decide because um, it's definitely not one of those situations where, hey, if I wrote it, it deserves to be published. It's not so ego. It's not an ego thing, but I really believed in the story, um, mm-hmm. and I had several uh, readers. Um, that agreed with me basically more than several so you know kind of just made that decision of well what do i do because i did get the rights back at that point you're kind of at a crossroad because it's hard to get another publisher to pick something up um vince flynn would probably be you know one of the exceptions to the rule of you know self-publishing his first book and then you know being you know the monster success that he was but that's that's rare and at that point, I had so much invested in it, I didn't want to roll the dice on going back to the board and trying to see if I could find someone else that would publish it. Um, I decided, you know, I've learned a lot in these last several years. I've made a lot of contacts. I had been always hesitant to self-publish, and I can talk about that in, um, after this part. Um, but I decided to move forward with it, but to take a step back for a few for a little while and do it the right way. And so to do it the right way, I knew it wouldn't be quick. But I also know that this is a business where if you don't put something out, you know, once a year or within a reasonable time period, people forget about you, your old news. Mm, Right. So what I did as soon as the parting with the publisher happened is I kind of went back to some of the things I had written before The Body Man just to see what kind of, you know, were they good wheels or were they junky, you know, flat tires. Um, And I decided I had written several novellas, actually, and I just kept coming back to Ransom Daughter. Um, I really love the characters. They're part of the first book I wrote for a series of books I wrote that never got published. And um, I went through it several times. I gave it to a few people and said, what do you think? And they're like, man, publish this. And I also thought with a novella, doing it through my own entity, because it, it took me like six months to basically create a book imprint, uh, create an LLC and you know hire someone for logo and edits. And just I outsourced everything that I shouldn't have been doing, which was most of it. I should write, yeah. and I'm pretty good at marketing, but I even outsource some of that. Yeah, I just said, you know, that's it, it's a lot of the same steps as putting a novel out. And I learned that, but where it saved a lot of time to do a novella was the fact that to proofread it the numerous times I had to and to make a lot of edit, which is what I did for about two months, beginning of the year, I could get through it a lot quicker with it being 35,000 words versus 95,000. Right. So time, right. the time factor was why I decided, and I, and I believed in the story, first of all, but I also thought if I'm going to try to put breach of trust out, let me kick the tires with something else first that I believe in, which also then gives me the opportunity to open up the world of Troy Evans and the Omega group while at the same time keeping the body man series going. So, you know, instead of doing one project, might as well do two, you know, <laughs> the grinder, What's another? like we said, What's, another? What's been the biggest hurdle you found to, you know, go and go on this on your own so far? Um, well, trying to keep the, the, the biggest hurdle is trying to do it the right way. And I don't know if that's the right way to word it. What I've seen with other examples of either small publishers or self-publishing is it, it it's, it's difficult because you eat, sometimes feel like you can do it all yourself Mm-hmm. Or you might not have the resources to be able to outsource it. So you have to do it yourself or maybe not not publish anything. And I didn't, if I was going to put it out, I wanted to put out a good quality product, um, which meant I had to be in a position where I could turn over the things I'm not good at, a la cover. I shouldn't be designing a cover. Um, I have good concepts, but I'm not a graphic designer. So had to find someone to do the, the cover. Um, also like editing, I needed to find a really solid editor. I can do a decent job and with a uh, s- software like a uh, pro writing aid and Grammarly, you know, you can get by and put something out there, but I need someone to come behind me and say, you know, Hey, dum dum, this is not. And I had several of those. The editor I gave it to was like, you know, this isn't the way they normally do it. I didn't fix it in the manuscript because you did it quite a lot. So you can put it out this way, or 
I suggest you don't and you fix it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, you know, writing for dummies, uh, version Bishop. Um, so yeah, but so getting those folks on board, um, I hired someone to do like, you know, uh, logos and that kind of stuff, which a lot of it was just reaching out to folks in the industry and saying, Hey, this is what I need. Give me some names of people you recommend. So probably the hardest part's been trying to coordinate all that. Well, while at the same time, I have two kids, I have a full-time job, I travel a lot or enough, and um, I do some days try to even write, although, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be writing again soon, but it's been sparse the last couple of months. It sounds like a true balance, but I love how, and even multiple times in just these few minutes, you said it was what you truly believed in. The decisions you made had to ultimately be guided by what you thought was best, and and that value judgment is hard in a world with a lot of voices, a lot of people with different objectives that may not match your creative, you know, expression. And it, it really seems like you're finding success sticking to your guns and what you believe in, but then leaning on the people around you that you've created through these relationships you have. For example, your so social media presence. It sounds like you've connected with so many great people who assisted you along the way, and they want to value the fact that it's your product, your baby, but they want to help you bring that to the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 definitely been a balancing act. But, you know, and just take a step back from that. I'm fortunate, and, and, and most people are in the same boat I am. I don't have to sell books to eat. Mm -hmm. um, if I had to do that, it would probably be a different different situation. So I'm fortunate that I can hold off and only put out something that I believe in. And also I'm not, you know, I'm not needing that income. You know, I, I live off my, my, my job and then my writing is my passion, but I can have that luxury of not having to have, cause that puts a lot of pressure. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially if people actually, and, and that's the side of the business I didn't know in 2014 when I wrote my first novel, I didn't know the business side of it at all. I just had a good story idea and thought, Oh, I can write a novel. And, um, you know, I wrote a pretty decent first novel, but it wasn't good enough to be published. And so as I've learned and as I've gotten more um, into the industry and then I've seen the business side of it, that's the whole side that I think as a writer, you're not prepared for. You're not prepared for the business side, even if and I have a business background, I have a finance background. I do. I'm a financial analyst by trade. So numbers and all that kind of stuff and contracts, those kind of things don't intimidate me. Um, but understanding how it works in publishing is a totally different beast. And it's hard. It's hard to balance that very well because you want to write, but that doesn't happen anymore. You can't just be purely a writer. Even if you're a big name, if you're the the Brad Thors, the Jack Cars, the Stephen Kings, whoever, they're doing marketing. Now, some of them will right. do a lot less than me or other people, um, and they can pay people to do a lot of it. But nowadays, people want to, you know, they want that visual presence or that online presence. And that was the first thing I learned when I wrote my first novel and I sent it out for to, for agents. Um, I had a couple people interested and their first question was, well, um, what's your social media presence? You know, and I replied basically like, eh, social media is for suckers. I don't do that. And they're like, yeah, when you have 10,000 Twitter followers, come back and talk to us. And I was just like, gosh, really? Are you serious? They were dead serious. You know, they expect you to do... Even if you get a traditional publishing deal, they expect you to do some heavy lifting. That's crazy, uh, though, because how many people out there with a story to tell, like you obviously have had many of inside of you, get crushed by that system then, right? Like the geniuses yeah. and the voices of history that have changed history and, you know, have not always been the ones who are the loudest or the most popular. Right. And their work has still withstood the test of time. So what yeah. does that mean for the future of the industry if it's about numbers and publicity and this marketing side of things versus nurturing the creative talent and really trying to find that diamond in the rough. Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I do think that being said, I do think there are those talents that can burst through without any of that. But I think it's the exception of the rule nowadays, right. um, just mm -hmm. for the interactions I've had with people with, I've, and I've interacted with people with some big publishing deals and, you know, it's, it's a business and, and it's not a, it's not a slight at the publishing world because now that I'm putting stuff out myself, I see what it all takes to get something, you know, to get a product over the finish line and then right. continue to market it. It's not a small endeavor. The crappiest part of it, though, is the author is typically the one that gets the smallest percentage of the pie. It's crazy. And that's what stinks because I'm, I've done now both sides of it, it you know, in, in the publishing in a very small, small degree, but I've had to touch a lot of pieces of it. And you realize how much work it all is. But then I also think about it and go, man, the person that created this amazing story 
is the one that might get 15% of the money. You know, that's crazy. Blows your mind, blows your mind. Um, which is why I think a lot more people are looking at a hybrid approach, which is I'm not doing full on all self or I won't do all self publishing. It's not my intent. I want to do a hybrid approach between traditional and um, self publishing. But you see why people want to move to self publishing, especially if they can invest some money into it, because it's cool to invest a little money and then get almost all of it back versus get a traditional publisher. And some people still have to still still choose and might have to, in some cases to pay for marketing and help do marketing. And they're getting the smallest slice, you know, and once people become successful, you know, then their percentages increase. When you've proven that you can make the publishing industry a lot of money, they'll give you a bigger piece of the pie later on down the road, you know, from a business perspective, it's smart, but it's still kind of like, wow, this is insane. Uh, these are things that you don't really think about as a fan, but tough way to make a living. So people yeah. just read books and go, Hey, I like this author. Cool. Keep supporting that author, but realize, man, there's a whole industry back there. That's people are really having to learn and not fight against. Cause it's not a, you're not, you're not fighting against the industry, but you're having to learn the industry. And then, then you kind of pick and choose what direction you want to go. Do you want to do full on traditional? Do you want to do small publisher? Do you want to self publish? And they all have pros and cons. Um, and some are very large. Um, even, sm- even with big publishing, there's some large cons um, and small publishing. Of course, there's a lot of problems because you have to either do everything or hire out just about everything. Yeah. I've always wondered about self publishers who go the pure like Kindle route or Kindle unlimited. Mm-hmm. And that's based on number of like page turns I've heard on Kindle unlimited. So it really just becomes about how much content can you put out there? And, and if you right. have a small group of dedicated readers, as long as they're turning every page, you know, like romance novels, if yes. you put out 30, 40, 50, 60 of them a year, you know, people are just going to rip through them if you have that dedicated crowd. Right. Have you, have you found, how is it working with like your big names, like an Amazon, or I don't know how it works with a Barnes and Noble, or we even use a, a platform called Scribed, which just rebranded to Everand. How do you it. feel self-publishing? Is is it okay going with some of those big name companies that are kind of mass conglomerates of all this media that they can just put out there for a subscription price or, or does that hurt the independent authors? Um, I think it can help. I mean, it can, it, it can, unfortunately it can be a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. So I've never done, and I know people that have, so I know enough about it to speak intelligently, but I haven't done Kindle Unlimited so far. I only have one thing out. Right. So probably have this conversation maybe a year from now, and maybe I'll have a little bit more insightfulness because I'm, I'll have two, the plan is to have two books out next year. Um, I'll have the okay. follow-up to The Body Man, Breach of Trust, uh, probably late spring, early summer. And then I'll have the um, uh, follow-up to uh, Ransom Daughter, not a follow-up, but the, the next story for Troy and the team, uh, their next mission um, is tentatively going to come out probably late fall, early winter of next year. So next year I'm going to double up, which is insanity again. Ambitious. But, uh, yeah. I've got the, the books are there. They just have to get some polish and they have to have covers and they have to have all the pieces I did for Ransom Daughter. Fortunately, I've got all the behind the scenes stuff in place now for that. So it's a lot, it's some of it's less effort than it was to set it all up and do all yeah, the gotcha. Yeah. Once you have that machine going, it, it'll, it'll go. Much yeah. It'll, it'll kind of help out. And also the body man, when I parted with the publisher, the body man kept the rights for the, uh, to keep publishing the body man. And um, I just had everything, anything after it or anything, anything else I did in any other series. But the publisher actually is, uh, I don't know when it's effective, it's going out of business. So I'll actually have, I thought it was happening this summer that I was getting them back, but it's still for not, for for whatever reason, it hasn't happened yet. But Um, you will get the rights back? Yeah, I'll have the rights back to that effective by probably by the end of the year, if not before. Um, So I'll probably, well, not probably, I'll put that one out. Cause I have everything in place. I have the draft, I have everything. So I just have to do an upload and it'll take some, it'll take a full weekend of work, but I've got the the mechanism in place to just put that up. And th- so that'll go up under my own brand as well. Oh, um, nice. So, yeah, so it's, it'll be, but cool thing with that is then I'll be able to bring the price point down a lot more for that. You know, I won't have to charge the same price for the ebook or the paperback. I probably won't do a hardcover option for the body man. Um, and that's another thing. And I have no problem discussing that but the hardcover options if you're not traditionally published or through a big enough publisher doesn't have to be one of the big five but a big enough publisher that actually is out there um doing orders for you know mass quantities of books if you're doing a one-off print of a hardcover like through um 
either through Amazon, which Amazon is actually a little better than Ingram Spark. Ingram Spark's the one that um, who the Body Man hardcover came off of. Those numbers are horrific. Yeah, for, the margins must be terrible. Yeah, you, you're making nothing. The, if I told you the amount of money I made every hard, and I sold decent, I sold more hardcovers than some successful authors, and from what I've heard, um, the amount of money I made off hardcovers was beyond a joke. Was there an audiobook for The Body Man? I can't recall. It was not. I tried to get the publisher to do it. I even tried to throw money in the kitty and say, hey, I'll even pay for half of it and stuff, mm-hmm. and the publisher wouldn't go for it. Um, I, I kind of understand it because you're not a proven track record at that point for your first book. Um, and that's something I've looked in a lot for Ransom Daughter. I was going to do an audio book, and I still might, um, but the amount you have to invest on the front end is it's it's very risky, um, especially yeah. if you run through uh, ACX, which is what Audible uh, Audible's company you don't control the price so mm-hmm. they get to choose the price so then it's really hard to know ahead of time how many units you have to move just to break even right. um like i said earlier you know some people are trying to write and actually put food on the table um other people just want their words out there but man from a business perspective if you just want to even get your money back your investment back you know you, you got to move some units and it's not sure. like 50 books 50 books aren't going to yeah. do squat for most people. It's interesting because I don't know if I've ever done an audiobook for a novella and we're huge audiobook fans. Yeah. I feel like they're so easy and and kind of fun to sit down and read without a huge investment of time. Right. That it's almost like that would be a podcast episode. You know, a novella I think of more of a podcast yeah. episode, like a long form two, three hour one than an audiobook, which Man, the body man and breach of trust coming. I would love to have an audiobook of that down the road. Where mm-hmm. a novella, I, I kind of do enjoy sitting down with one and knowing Correct. I'm going to be able to rip through it. Well, and if you have an Audible account, you're not going to want to use one of your credits for a novella. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Fourteen exactly. ninety nine for a novella would be really pricey. Right. Where and I understand that. So if I had the control of saying, "Hey, set the price point for a novella at six ninety nine," I know how many units I'll have to move. We can make money not having that ability to know what they're going to set it at or 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 maybe they will still keep it at 14.99 or, or 20.99 no one's going to buy a novella yeah that right. that's tough right. yeah. so yeah. yeah so then the numbers are then those are the stuff that i had to learn that part of me is happy i know the business side of it and the other part of me that wants to create books says well darn it i don't want to know any of that crap yeah. you know i don't want to get in the weeds because what happens when i have to dive in the weeds for that means I'm not crafting, you know, the third book in the Body Man series or the third story that I've got for um for Troy and the Omega group. So, but it, it's 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 a good problem to have cuz you know, 2014 I wrote my first book and I just dreamed of being a published author. So now to know I've got two books out there, I'll have probably two more by the end of next year. Um again, it's a blessing to have that problem to deal with. And it's just time management. You know, you kind of have to decide what you're going to do um uh, for me, if I'm really especially in a mode of working on stuff, the one thing I have to just stop looking at is television. Stop watching TV, you know, mm-hmm. stop binging, you know, Yellowstone and all these other series. And it might be fun to watch, but guess what? That's not helping you finish a book. No, that's not. So. Yeah, I wanted to, you know, talk to you a little bit more about, you know, let's get into this this story. And you mentioned that you not only have this novella, but a couple other ones. What What sort of inspired you? To, you know, come up with this Omega team and, and, you know, where, where do you see them going in the future? Yeah. Great story. Or a great question. Um, so I had, at that point I had written three books in Troy Evans world. Two of them had the Omega group and one was actually a prequel of how Troy became Troy, how he, you know, got on the Omega group and everything. So I was kind of doing them not quickly, but you know, it took a couple years to get those out. And I was learning a lot of things. I was getting rejections all the time from, uh, Vengeance was the first book that came out with Troy and the Omega Group. I was, you know, kind of waiting on all my uh, "we're not interested" uh, emails to come through, which was super not fun to get, you know, be told no a lot. Um, well, in the meantime, after a couple of years of going through all that, I didn't want to keep writing six, seven books in Troy's world and then have zero published. So as I was kind of like working the first two books through the system, um, I had downtime, and I was just like, you know, I don't want to start another full book, and I just had all these ideas for Troy and the team. And I actually had started them like thinking I would like release them through my website and stuff like that. So I just started crafting these stories and and didn't really do much with them until years later where I kind of went back to them. And, and so the ideas were always 
especially early on, I'd have just some tons of ideas. And so I would just jot them all down. I had notepads just filled with different ideas. And then when I'd have the time to sit down and write, I'd flip back to those and go, ah, that's what I want to do with Troy and the guys. Or um, as the books move on with Troy, he actually moves into a different role. In the first books I, re- I wrote, he moves into a different role outside of the Omega group. So then I had all these stories of what he did after that period of his life because I kind of advanced him kind of um, not quickly, but I, I I didn't keep him like Mitch Rapp stagnant where he doesn't age almost. So, yeah, so this, the ideas were, were just there and then open up the world of the body man and kind of the same thing. Um, when I finished that story, I was kind of waiting actually to get a, an offer, waiting for stuff to happen with the body man. I started a book for um, Merci, who's the female assassin. Oh, yes. So I started like her own novel. Plus, I already had started a novel before that that I still haven't picked back up of Eli and Cat. When I leave, when you leave off the Body Man, Eli and Cat are going off to look for a missing U.S. senator. Right. There's a whole novel there, and I only have like two chapters of it done. Uh, it's called the Twenty Nine Club. One day I'll get back to it. <laughs> Again, I've got too many little projects on the on the shelf right now. But the cool thing with that world and being able to create it is you can take a story like that and several characters you really believe in. And I like the idea of giving them out in their own, you know, giving them their own storylines, their own books, and then crisscross them back in. So I even, I haven't really heard much about it, but I even put a little something in there for keen observers and ransom daughter to point, to point out of like, Hey, I think I've seen that name before. It's like, yes, you have. So those worlds are going to collide. And I don't know exactly when or how I haven't kind of figured all that out. My pantser kicks in on stuff like that. But um, yeah, I like the idea of doing that where you have, maybe two or three book series going and every so often those characters intersect and they need each other or they're going to b- battle each other or whatever. Or they're going to you know yell at each other, whatever. That's I love cool. how you have this web, this universe, mm-hmm. uh, because as readers from the fan perspective, I saw a few name drops here or even a little story about what Troy did back in his army days. And, and one of the characters he encounters knows his backstory, calls him a hero. They have a great discussion around that. And right. to hear that that was all planned, that's part of your vision, it really speaks to your goals and, and where you see this going and how how big you, your universe could be. And it sounds yeah. like you have a path to get there. And I loved one other thing for readers who haven't picked up Ransom Daughter. If you're not interested yet, you get a breach of trust little promo teaser at the end. That mm-hmm. was really cool to go back to Nick Jordan and really see how the events of the body man are still affecting him kind of wet our whistle for the next book. So I really like how what you're building is all integrated. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I wish I could say that was my genius, but I know other people that have done the same thing. And actually someone said that, Hey, on the back of ransom daughter, put like breach of trust in there. I'm like, I don't know if it's really completely done. The first chapter I've been tweaking with it, like get it as done as you can and put it in there. You can always change it a little bit. Yeah, no one's yeah, going exactly. no to fault you for saying, that word wasn't in the version you put out last fall. What? It was also it was also cool though because there's a clear switch in the writing style. So it kind of shows a little of your history as well, knowing that Troy was an earlier character. He's been on the shelf, you know, he's been stewing. Right. And then you read that breach of trust and you're like, oh yeah, this style is kind of similar to what I read in The Body Man. Right. And it just kind of speaks to your journey a little bit. Cause I noticed, and then it also speaks to, I guess how you have to craft a novel versus a novella and yeah. how one you can be much more expansive. And in those few pages with Nick Jordan, we're reliving his trauma, his experience where mm-hmm. the characters in the novella, you go deep, but you go deep in a different way. You almost right. have to have an economy of language where yes. you get to know those characters very well, but through very few words. Yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. I had very, I, and I was conscious about that when I wrote it of like, I need to put a f- complete story together, but be ver- use a lot of brevity, basically. How, what few words can I say, but still keep the readers going and still give, you know, the action. I will say something real quick, too, about and not giving it away, but it's a little, not an Easter egg, but the first chapter of Breach of Trust was not the first chapter for a while. So the first, first chapter that's in Breach of Trust started as like chapter three, and it was different, mm-hmm. completely different from how it was, but it was same kind of a sequence, kind of a dream sequence going on where the body man has this thing occur. And so I, I gave it to uh, a fellow writer, very successful writer who's been a huge supporter and gave him breach of trust and came back with very kind words with one exception, chapter three. And it like crushed my spirit. I'm like, man, that's such a good chapter. Why, why are you saying to pull it out of the book? And this author replied and said, 
because that chapter needs to become its own book, different character, change the character, make that a novel, a full length wow. novel. And that'll be your golden ticket. Cause the concept of what was happening with Nick was like mind blowing, like, Oh my goodness, that can't really happen. So I did. And I've got about 30,000 words into that, into that uh, book. Um, and again, I had to put it aside for ransom daughter um, to get this out. So, and I had to stew on it. I, th- it's one of these high concept books that I normally know how I'm starting, where I'm going at the end. And the middle is kind of a little bit like jelly. Like, eh, something in there. I got to figure it out and I'll figure it out as I write. Cause I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this. That one, I, I know where I need it to go, but I've not been able to like conceptualize it enough. And it's so many moving pieces that I don't feel comfortable enough to like dive into it and then get a third of the way through or two thirds of the way through and be like, Oh crap. I box myself into a corner and I have to like scrap half this book. So I kind of go back to that one every couple of weeks or so and go, what about this? And I just make notes, make notes. And at some point, maybe in about a year, I'll finally get to a spot where I'm like, the light bulb will go off and I'll be like, that's the book. That's, you know, it's like, so it's a little piece of my psychosis that happens as, you know, and if, if these books sold well and I could do this as a full-time job, um, I might be able to come out with books more often, or maybe I wouldn't enjoy doing it as a full-time. I have no idea. Um, I just know I have to, you know, economy of time means I have to pace myself and saying, okay, um, that will, that will happen. And Lord willing, everything goes good in life. You know, you don't get hit by a train, you'll put out other books, but, but it's a good problem to have. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, it also kind of shows your like you know, how ingrained you are in this fandom, because, you know, the type of things that you're saying about what you're doing with your own works are exactly what like me and Mike do sometimes, or, you know, we have this little group chat with some of our other friends where mm-hmm. we'll say, Oh, we really wish that little piece could be like, you know, uh, an entire story. And like, you know, we, we talk to authors, but we never, we never really get them to say like what you're saying now, the fact that, you know, you actually are doing, doing exactly what we want people to do. You know, that's that's pretty cool to think about that. Yeah, I'll give you another Easter egg. You were, you were mentioning Ransom Daughter. So there's a thing mentioned in there <clears throat> called Operation Scribe. I don't remember that, but he, that's one of the missions Troy had. I mentioned it, and that's all it's mentioned. He goes, oh, Operation Scribe. So Operation Scribe was one of my original stories for Troy. Not, I didn't write it. It was, I planned out seven books for Troy. And one of them was this story called, it was going to be called Operation Scribe. Um, or the scribe, sorry, it's not, it's not operation scribe, the scribe. It was an operation, but it was called the scribe was the name of the book. But that book was basically, and this is one that I don't know that I'll ever get to because when I was conceptually putting it together, I realized to write this story, I have to go live that life. Not any spy, any kind of weird stuff like that, but it's the concept behind the story is that troops are kidnapped over in the Middle East, not held for ransom, but they're kidnapped for another reason that I don't want to give away. And one of the people that's um, kidnapped is basically a reporter that's reporting, you know, mm-hmm. is an embedded reporter. And to do the story justice, though, even though I have friends that are, you know, in fifth group, to do the story justice, I need to go be embedded for probably a couple of weeks or a month of my life because I need to know what it's like to lay on the ground multiple nights in a row and just gunfire and just all the stuff that those guys, you know, God bless them, have had to go through. I don't know that I could do it well enough by making it up in my head or watching movies or anything like that. So, um, and I, I had a buddy that said he could probably get me in with one of the, one of the groups. And I, I never pursued it. Cause at that time in my life, I couldn't, I couldn't take the time off work. I wasn't making money writing. So that's another one in the back of my mind. If I know what operation scribe is, I know what the, in the, the book, the scribe, I know what would happen, but to do it justice, I got to have a couple things work right, which I also believe that, you know, you make your reality happen sometimes. Sure. So yeah, the one way it doesn't happen is if you give up. Same right. thing with the writing. Same thing I always tell people like, oh, it's too it's too hard. Or how do you, you know, what if you don't make money? Or what if you don't do this? And it's like, well, what if, what else are you doing with your time? If you want to write a book, write a book. Doesn't mean it's going to be a good book. Doesn't mean it's going to get published. Uh, maybe it shouldn't get published. But you can at least complete it. You can see what you have because maybe you end up writing something that, oh my goodness, is the next book that people want to read. But you'll never know unless you finish that first step. Well, it's funny, Chris brought up how this sounds just like some of the authors we cover and all the things we want to see behind the scenes with some of our favorites. 
because you just mentioned two Brad Thor references there where he did embed before mm-hmm. he wrote the apostle, which was one of his Middle East books where, where they were on the ground the entire book. And then also never quit. That That is some advice he told us on the podcast that he got as a young author and that he stands by and just never quit it, is where how it got him where he is. And the fact that you're, you're channeling all this and you see yourself wanting to do all these things and your universe could capture that. It, it's also like a someone like a Tolkien. He would have a backstory for everything, even if you never see it again. You never saw it. Exactly. That one house they walked past. He knew who lived in that house, right. you know, what their kitchen looked like, you know, what their occupation was and when they moved into town. And it was yeah. just a house, you know, the characters walked by at some point. Right. And it sounds like you want that level of uh, yeah. omniscience and, and knowledge of, of, of the universe, which is pretty yeah, cool. I, to me, I, I know you can do stories without having that, but I think having that just gives it much more authenticity. And yes, absolutely. Yep. For the never quit advice, I'm sure Brad Thor is the one that I heard it from. It is the one piece of advice that out of all everything I've heard from authors, it's the one thing that I think is kind of that universal thread. Sure. Because everybody has a little bit of a different story and how they made it and how they got there. Like a lot of times I've talked to authors and they say, well, I just got lucky. And I always go, yeah, but I don't believe in luck. Like, well, what do you mean you don't believe in luck? I said, no, I believe in fate. I believe your actions have repercussions, um, but I don't believe you get lucky. And I, and I mentioned some other podcasts and I don't, like to harp on it but to me the the best example of that is jack carr and the terminal list being made i don't know if we talked about it when we when we talked about the series uh the the the, uh amazon series last year but you know that series wasn't made because jack forced it to happen or he got lucky no that series got made because while he was active duty while he was an officer he gave some really good advice to someone getting out of the military that person took that advice ended up following through on what Jack had advised, got a job working with who else but Chris Pratt and requested that book for Chris Pratt. So to me, that's not getting lucky. That's you're putting something good out there and someone else is, you know, basically pulling it forward eventually. And you're getting paid back for something that you might've, might've been innocuous. You did it not even thinking because that's who you are. Well, that comes forward at some point in life. And then something happens to you because of a seed you planted maybe a year ago, maybe 20 years ago, that you know germinates for all that time and it happens. And I know some people would say, well, some people never make it. Yeah, and I don't know why they don't make it. Maybe they just didn't try hard enough. Maybe they weren't, maybe they just didn't make the right contacts. But I don't think, I think it's not for getting lucky or being in the right place at the right time. I think it's, you, you, you're, you're, you're putting everything out there you can and something catches on, something grabs. Yeah. And you don't know what that's going to be. That's why you put as much out there as you can. That's why you do as much good. You help as many people as you can because it's the right thing to do. And maybe that will be the thing that helps you. And if it doesn't, then you still did the right thing. doesn't matter. You put yourself in the position to be lucky. Yeah. Know? Right. right. I, I feel like we, we should have introduced you as financial analyst, author, and life coach, life Eric coach. Bishop. <laughs> I do public speaking, $25,000 a conference. Uh <laughs> I don't do, uh, you know, I'll give you my Cayman account. So (laughs) there you go. Off the books. Sorry, IRS, but you guys take enough of my money. (laughs) Well, what if, since we hinted at it earlier, we get into a few spoilers here for the crew that has read Ransom Daughter, because there's a couple of things I do want to ask you about the choices you made there in, in crafting that book. So anybody who hasn't picked it up, go ahead and download it on Kindle or purchase a copy on Amazon. Uh, Ransom Daughter by Eric Bishop. But spoiler warning coming here, <laughs> you got the twist. And and Chris and I have coined it the Howdy twist from the Chris Howdy series with Haley Chill. Every one of his books, a trademark is the twist. I feel like we should call it the Bishop Bend because <laughs> when we're getting clues about the finger, maybe not being her finger and Troy having a bad feeling about this. And literally it all comes to a head when they're about to breach the door. Like yeah. you built up some really awesome suspense there in a very short amount of page time. Thank you. Uh, I, I'd like to say it was intentional because it was just didn't know if it was going to work. Yeah. The twist with, 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 with what I did with that. It was, you know, it, it was organic. It was definitely organic, but I know with reading enough books out there that boy, if you in the first couple chapters can guess exactly what's going to happen in the story, that's kind of boring. And, and not to say right. that every book I'm going to write is going to have a twist. Um, 
Absolutely not. But I, I want you want to have that mystery and that suspense. And if you can get a moment in there that people go, oh, that's oh, yeah. what it really is. Then I think, you know, you've done your job. Um, and some people might not like it. Some people might say gimmicky or, oh, of course, it's the father. That's the bad. It's this and that. But, uh, you know, you also do the best you can. Well, I think you did enough like groundwork to like lay the the like breadcrumbs in terms of the father being like a little suspicious. And but I think like the bigger twist is this idea that she, you know, like she like she was in on it, right? And then that he Troy is like this excellent person, you know, picking up. Like I like that aspect of it. I think like the my favorite part about this was Troy and I'm excited to read a little bit more about him, you know, going forward. And I think you kind of see how good he is, you know, in a shorter period of time. He's able to pick on pick up on these little things. And then you're you're sort of as you're writing, you know, those couple chapters, you're sort of teasing us and forces us to want to continue, want to keep reading, you know, like, oh, he, he does, you don't spill the beans right away. It's like, uh, oh, I, I have this idea, you know, like I'll get back to it or let, let me think about it, you know, that kind of stuff. And their relationship, it builds up to Troy and all of that we've learned about him. Saving Abby, sure, by shooting the gun away and whatever, but he actually saves her by listening to her, you know, and the dialogue between the two of them. It's what you're saying, Chris. All of that has a crescendo that ends with one, a really cool action scene, but even more important, maybe, is their relationship and follow up post trauma after the trauma ends. Did you put a big emphasis on dialogue and relationship in this one? Big time. Um, and then part of that too, though, with the dialogue with with Troy and, and why he connects with Abby, is because of what hasn't been uh, kind of you know displayed yet or revealed is his backstory. Because mm. um, like I said, the first book I wrote was Vengeance, which Troy is with the Omega Group, and he's on a path of vengeance. He's basically destroying his life almost. He's hell or high water. Give me the most dangerous missions. I don't care. Well, why would he be like that unless he's just crazy, unless he's got something screws loose, but he doesn't. He's a very, very intelligent person, not Mensa intelligent, but he's he's a smart guy and he has a good common sense. Um, but his world is absolutely blown away in a story that will come out in a couple of years and that, that will be revealed of why he went that way. And that what what occurred changed his path. He had no path originally to go being the special forces. He was going to follow his father's footsteps and be in the FBI. He wanted to do analytic work. He wanted to do investigative work. He, you know, he was a guy that kind of really put his mind to something and figured things out. And then life changes and in, a, in a heartbeat. He pivots and he just goes after this. You know, I'm going to kill all these guys, all these bad people out there. I want to usher them into, you know, a fast pass to hell. And that then proves and, you know, to be not the most, you know, soul you know quenching activity it doesn't it doesn't bring the joy and the peace he needs so that's as a character i tried to develop him in those other stories of what really at his core is going to bring him happiness um and it's not going out there and killing as many bad people as possible um that's just going to almost feed that fire of being unhappy actually so with abby he's already gotten to that point where he's kind of figuring things out and so he's able to instill some of those truths in her. He's able to tell her, like, you know, hey, life goes on. Horrible things happen to people all the time, but it's how they deal with those things. And to me, that's the part that I love writing, that I can put some messages in there that are hopefully, you know, heartwarming and hopeful for people. Not that, you know, boy, there's bad people out there and there's fathers that abuse their daughters and all these things, but there's actually good people out there. So and even if something bad were to happen to you, um, that can be used for a good doesn't would rather it not happen, but if it does happen, how are you going to react to what happens? And I think as a human, that's a big point for all of us, whether our heartaches are big or small or whatever might happen. It's, you know, life's not easy for anybody. I know people look at, you know, very successful people, the Musks and the Bezos and Gates and all them. Yeah, they might have a lot. How many of them are actually happy though? How many of them are actually doing something that fills their soul and that, you know, and if for most of them, I think if they chase money for all their life, I, I don't think that they're very happy people because I don't think that, that, you know, that fills that void that everybody has. So right. there's some deep stuff for you though. So that's, we'll give you the $10,000 discount on that speech. So, you know, yes. life coach, Eric Bishop. <laughs> no, I, well, and I, again, I've not had the hardships a lot of people have, but I've learned enough, especially in the last couple of years that it's like, man, I 
you need to just be grateful for what you have. Like, you know, this weekend I took my son out to see you two at the sphere financially, awesome. the best, best decision I've ever made. That's Probably awesome. Not. But I tell you what, when you're 16 year old, 16 year olds don't always show emotion stuff. When your 16 year old gives you a hug, gives you a kiss on the cheek. And it's like, that's the greatest concert I've ever seen. Thank you, dad. You're like, that was worth the money. Screw the yeah, money. Exactly. Absolutely. So, quick story on that too. So I got um, floor tickets and I got them a long time ago. And then, of course, I did my research these last couple months of, okay, how do you get close to the front of the stage? And read a bunch of blogs, figured out. And so we were up at, they said you couldn't stay overnight at the Sphere. So we were at the Sphere at 620. And we were number 86 and 87 in the list, on uh, the, the line of get your, because you had to go in the morning, get a bracelet, a numbered bracelet, and then go back with that bracelet in the evening to actually go at that time. Like they numbered, like number one, two, three would go in. Yeah, yeah. And then you could go into the stage. So, so we got there early enough that we could get close to the front. So we're there. We're about three. I was going to go towards the left side of the stage, closer to the edge. And the people we were with were like, no, you really want to be in the center to see Bono. Even if you're four back, you'd rather be four back in front of Bono versus two back on the edges side. Cause they don't do much on the edges side of the stage. They everything's the center stage. So sure enough, we are, it was the most amazing thing and then they got to until the end of the world which is one of my favorite songs and bono starts reaching and coming towards the center of the stage and he was reaching for people Man. comes into the crowd flips over on his back and is putting his arm out and right before he gets up my son got pushed by the guy we were with in a good way because he's like you gotta get closer bruce pushes him up and bruce grabs bono's arm for about half a oh. second and so he comes back and he's like Dad, i touched bono <laughs> That's all I've heard for the last two days. Is he, he, he grabbed me yesterday, even. He goes, that's the hand that touched Bono. And I'm just like. Can't watch it. But like as a dad, man, I was tearing up because I was yeah. like, that's the freaking coolest thing in the world. Because I grew up as a teenager. Guess who I loved? Bono. And so my son's at that concert and I'm, I'm enjoying it with him. That's amazing. I did have a copy of Ransom Daughter for him. I did personalize and all that. And I tried like six people at the venue being like, hey, I got a book for Bono. And they're all like, no, we won't take it. Go to that. Throw it at him. <laughs> and then get kicked I out. I figured if I threw something at him, I was going to be escorted out. I've done a lot of yeah. I, I work with uh, uh, one of my friends is a security director for a lot of big bands. So I know what's frowned upon. Don't <laughs> I, do I went to like eight Shinedown shows last year with my friend John. Uh, and so I, yeah, no, I didn't throw a book at him, but um, I'm going to mail it to him. I mailed him the body man because I had the body man. I, I mentioned Bono in the acknowledgments. Um, I never got any acknowledgement that it was received or any that I sent it to his management company. I'll do the same thing. And I'll just in my brain go, maybe he'll see this one. That's so funny. I still got to see the greatest concert and my son got to touch Bono. And that's, that's a great experience. One of the guys. So a couple of people that were the first in line, they were in, they were kind of ones telling us how it worked. They were in the center. And Bono bit one of the guy's hands in a very playful way. He grabbed the guy's hand and I got a video of it. And he just reached <laughs> up and goes, <laughs> so they're telling me after the show, I was like, Bites his hand. Bono. They're like, Bono bit his hand. And I'm like, Damn. oh, that's even better. Your son could have got bitten by Bono. I know. My son could have got bit by Bono. <laughs> I feel like the amount of research you put into getting prepared to find this spot in the concert is like equivalent to how much research some of these authors put into their book, like <laughs> backbreaking stuff, hours, hours on end. Maybe it was worth it though. It was worth it. I got, we got a story for a lifetime. And, um, you know, again, it was, you know, I was joking with people before, where do you take your 16 year old? Well, to Vegas, of course, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who's going to be the first thriller writer to have a scene inside the sphere. That would be pretty awesome. Backstage at the sphere, some sort of hand to hand combat fight spill onto the stage. Like, uh, uh, the goofy movie. Yeah. No, I, I, I'll work it in. Don't worry. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, I've we got want to see the sphere in breach of trust. Hey, I could put it in. I still, I, the, the cool thing about doing it yourself is you have until the moment you upload that file to Amazon to go and, and, and one quick spoilers. I screwed up. I made a change at ransom daughter the last minute, like literally like, Oh, this would be a great line to add. And so I changed a word and I spelt a character's name wrong. Kate. Shut up. You saw it too. <laughs> I have fixed all the variations. I've fixed all the future variations, but I was just like, how did I do that? And then I realized how I did it. And I'm like, that's another reason why you don't dink around with a file five minutes before you upload it because yeah, no. your sins will find you out. <laughs> yeah, hey, I had a friend you... reach out. He goes, 
why is Kate spelt K in one spot and C in another? And I'm like, get out of town. Dude, no, really. Look on such and such page. She's actually a double agent. She goes by Kate and Kate in different parts of her life. And she made a mistake and overlapped the two spellings of her name. And now her other identity is going to be found out. Mike, you might be onto something. Have, have, have you hacked into my book and seen what Kate's real, who she really is? Oh, no. Damn, he's got me. I want the money back for that life lesson. Okay. I'll knock 5,000 off it. How's that? <laughs> How about this? You take that money and you put it in towards a marketing ploy to get breach of trust advertised on the sphere. You get five minutes of breach of trust covering the sphere for all of Vegas to see during the F1 race in a few weeks. How much would that cost? Oh, my goodness. I might need a GoFundMe page really quickly set up, and we might need to all contribute a lot of money. Oh, that's hysterical. It was weird. Uh, I've been to Vegas several times. It's not my favorite place in the world. I've been there with with folks and then without, without anybody. Like, I've been there on business trips. Very depressing place. Don't enjoy being there by myself, at least me. I, it was great being there with my son. The experience was amazing, but um, all the scaffolding and stuff set up for the F1 race. Like I was going to take my son, like Ocean's Eleven moment, you know, get up there. Maybe George Clooney will show up at the same time, and then I could give him a copy of Rats' Daughter. I'm like, hey, I got something for you to pitch to Amazon, baby. No, you can't get to that side of that strip in front of the Bellagio. It's all stands. I was pissed. I was like, damn, these F1 racers, what are they doing to me? Um, so yeah, I could, I did show them the fountain and the lights, everything went up, but it was from the side and it was very, it, it, it wasn't the George Clooney moment, unfortunately. So, <laughs> well, close us out here, uh, Eric, with the elevator pitch. If tomorrow you're in an elevator, Bono walks in, you got 15 seconds to sell him the body man and ransom daughter. Why should our listeners like Bono pick up your books uh, as soon as possible? Well, Bono has a daughter. He has two daughters, actually. One of them is an actress. And if Bono's daughter was kidnapped, he would give anything to save her. But what if money wasn't enough? Maybe he has to hire someone else to do the deed and get his daughter back. Do it, Bono. Bang. Well, who protects the office of the president? The body man. The body man. There it is. The body man protects the office of the president. What does that mean? First of all, you should pick up a copy and you should realize that the body man's job is pretty complicated. Yes, it's very complicated. Well, there it is. Thanks, Eric, for joining us again. What is this? I think your third time on the podcast. And yes, it is. So, Hopefully there will be many more as soon as more of your books come out. So we'll talk to you in, in 2024 for sure. Absolutely. I appreciate the time. Appreciate all you guys do. Uh, you've, you've helped helped Kyle and helped all the others that have kept Mitch Rapp's name alive. Um, and, uh, I think Don Bentley will be doing his part here starting next year as well. So it's great to see, uh, great to see those characters, uh, live on. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate you coming on. Always good catching up with you. Thanks guys. All right, guys, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Eric. Always great. Nice to talk to him. You know, when he was talking, I was thinking about this. He was saying he doesn't believe in luck and, uh, there's, a uh, I pulled it up, but it wasn't like I couldn't go back to it. Um, but there's a quote, and I, I knew I was trying to think of it, but it's by Thomas Jefferson. And he says, I'm a great believer in luck. And I find that the harder I work, the more of it I have. Like, it's it's truly like what it is, you know? Like, there it is. Yeah, it's, I, I knew I had heard something like that before. So, yeah, that's it. That's it. You, like I said, you have to put yourself in a position to be lucky. It's like Jack Carr. Sure, he had a lucky break. He had a few people really help him out like talking with you know brad thor and getting his name in front of emily bessler and everything but he also had to have the goods right so like sure. his ability to tell a story the way he does and build a character like he did with james reese that began when he first checked out a book in the library and started devouring everything he could by all of these classic authors you know same way his military achievements didn't just happen out of nowhere the moment he committed as what a teenager i think he told us to you know, this life and finding everything he can book, movie, comic, whatever on the Marines and, and whoever and the SEALs. You put yourself in a position to be lucky or you put yourself in a position to have the disposition to accomplish what you do. And I think it's the same with Eric. You know, he's really putting himself out there, working hard and building a community. That's part of how we got to know him is through his social media. He really actually engages, doesn't just post for clicks and, and try to get clickbait and be flashy. He just wants to show his life, his journey, what it takes to be an author and a storyteller. And that authenticity, I think, has come through and, and served him well. 
Yeah. One thing though, Chris, before you close us out is he mentioned the cover and I heard on a few of his podcasts that J Todd Wilkins, we talked to him a little bit online and he's part of the best thrill books review. He's the guy who made the cover for, for him. He's a media whiz and a, and an artistic uh, digital creator. So check him out on Twitter at Zen extremist Zen Z E N extremist E X T R E M I S T. He did the cover for this book. His work is pretty great. Chris, if you were going to judge a cover by the book, what do you think about the cover of Ransom Daughter? Intrigued. You know, I'm a sucker for Paris. It's got like, Paris. It's got Paris. It's got the Eiffel Tower. It's got the man in all black. That's a reference uh, inside. So I guess we're talking to this post spoilers. So yeah, it, it, it does all the things. It, it hits an actual event. We don't see a face. Um, the guy is, is dressed, you know, accordingly to like how, what he would have been dressed on this op. Like, I, I think it's perfect. It's, it's enough intrigue. Like something's going to go down in Paris, which, yep. which does like and they perfect. follow the guy outside the Eiffel tower and yeah. then out of the restaurant. I like the lettering. I like the colors that's dark, but it's great fun. The, but the light from the, from the city of lights, you know, perfect. Yeah. You have that. What was it? 60, 30, 10 rule or whatever, where the 60 is this dark ominous sky this gray and black sky you got that 20 30 percent is the title ransom daughter and body right. man yeah. yeah and then you got that little bling of the eiffel tower and the yellow and the white so i think it's a great composition for a cover yeah and when you judge it by the book you're spot on and absolutely works for this one so shout out to uh j todd wilkins zen extremist for another great uh piece of digital content there awesome to see uh you know two people in this thriller community working together to achieve some really cool stuff with the cover there yep yep all right so next week we are going to be bringing to you our long-awaited discussion on damascus station and yes. boy you're not going to want to miss this one guys it's a fucking banger i i think it's the fourth time i've read this book and chris i've been trying to get you to read it i maybe you, you interviewed here and i couldn't make that interview yeah, talking to David was just awesome. I was so bummed you couldn't be there because I knew when I read this, it might be my favorite book I've read in a long time, if not, period, favorite book, period. Like wow, it, that's, that's, that's big. It, it's up there, dude. It's really, really great. So I really want the listeners to hear our conversation on that next week. Definitely check it out. All right, we need to thank our patrons, including our special operator, Sherry F., our special agents, Daryl, Kevin, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, and Mark. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on thrillerpod.com or on Twitter and Instagram at thrillerpodcast. And as always, just let Troy be Troy. You're deep into the hustle, man. You're in it. I wanted to do this for so many years. And unfortunately, the way the cards have fallen so far is that I needed to go this path. And again, I'm, I'd am i love to get a traditional deal, possibly. But as I've gotten into the weeds, they're not necessarily always a good thing financially. Yeah, sure. You know, there's uh, the... I don't know if... You, I'll, I'll have to send you the article, Mike, if I haven't already. I probably haven't. Or, or, or you, Chris. The numbers are like, there's 10 books a year that make that sell a million copies or more worldwide 10 books 500 books a year sell a hundred thousand copies or more so number the, the amount of i know now about book sales and what you make for book sales that tells you that there's probably a couple thousand authors in the world that could make a living off it like not okay. have either good residuals from other books or a spouse or a partner that makes good money or whatever to actually make it, you know, again, put food on your table. This yeah, is a yeah. crap. This is a business that you have to believe in or you're going to like lose your mind. Yeah. Right. And you have to do it for the love of writing. Like you, you yeah, started exactly. with the, the love of your stories that, that yes. you've had cooking. Yeah. And that's for me. I, you know, I, I, the first editor I ever hired said, if I told you right now, this book wouldn't get published, would you write another one? And I said, yeah, I'm already starting another one. They're like, okay, cool. That's what I need to know. So you don't, yeah. this isn't just purely, I want to make a bunch of money and get this thing. And I'm like, no. I'd love to make a bunch of money. I'm not stupid. Vegas ain't cheap. But at the same time, I'll if 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 these books just cost me money and I can put out a book once a year and it costs me a little bit and I don't ever make it back, I'll do it the rest of my life. Yeah.
but I'd rather it purchase me an island in Fiji so I can write a couple. <laughs> there there you go. We all. Well, we'll we'll keep reading you. Someone has to do it. Car can't make all the money. So the rest of us have to make some. <laughs>